Once again, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. And the classical music that we opened with was Symphony Fantastic, written by Hector Berlioz in 1832. It's the first romantic symphony, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it, but mostly about the story of Hector Berlioz and his first wife, uh, Harriet Smithson, a famous Irish actress. Because in this episode of Oro Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about romance, obsession, and possession, and the demonic. And so, Symphony Fantastique, 1832. It's called a pro program music. Berlioz uh, was a man open to obsessions, and especially romantic obsessions. And Symphony Fantastique is a musical expression of his romantic obsession with a famous Irish actress named Harriet Smithson. Like I said, Symphony Fantastique was written in 1832. How do we know that uh, the subject matter is Harriet Simpson? Because it's program music, which means the composer actually wrote a description telling what each of the movements of Symphony fantastic are about. And so without going into the whole symphony, which I only understand as a complete amateur, is that the first part of it is about the artist, Reed Berlioz, falling in love with this delightful creature, Harriet Simpson. And on its trajectory into the very last movement, which features the old Catholic hymn, Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath, which was usually played at funerals. It's about a witch's Sabbath where she and everybody else is mocking poor Hector because his love is unrequited. But it is this symphony that for Berlioz, he won the heart of his, uh, of his intended, Harriet Smithson. And on the face of it, it looks like a lovely romantic story because that's what romance is about. But Berlioz is a much darker story. And it's like a lot of dark stories, it begins in law school. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer, but he refused and decided he wanted to be a composer, going against his dad's wishes. And so he was a very talented guy. He's a wonderful composer. Um, but he always had these obsessive problems with women. One of his first big romances was this young woman he met in Paris during his student days. He won a big prize, a musical prize, and he had to go to Rome to study and, and improve his skills as a composer. But he didn't want to leave his girlfriend behind. Why? Because uh, mom did not approve of the relationship. Like many mothers who look at their daughter's choice in uh in spouses or work that around the other way between sons and uh, their choices and how their mothers feel about it. Mom saw trouble coming with Berlioz, and so she was happy he moved to Rome. Then she found another boyfriend for her daughter and had her daughter tell Berlioz that uh, she was moving on in life. That threw Berlioz into a murderous rage. This is how weird Berlioz was at this point in his life. So he bought some weapons of murder. Maybe he'd strangle her, maybe he'd stab her. He also bought a French uh, maid's outfit so that he could disguise himself so nobody would know who it was who murdered mom and, uh, and uh, his former sweetheart. 
So he got on the train, headed for Rome, where he had his plan how he's going to carry out this murder. And apparently somewhere along the way, he kind of came to his senses, lost his interest in murdering his former sweetheart, and returned to his studies. But the personality didn't change. And so Harriet Smithson. Harriet Smithson was born in Ireland. She's about three years older than Berlioz. She was born in 1800, Berlioz in uh, 1803, I think. And uh, Smithson was uh, the daughter of a theater manager and an unnamed actress, so read that as you will. She was raised by a clergyman who kept her sweet eyes far away from the stage, but upon the clergyman's death, she reignited her love with the stage and she became a famous actress. Um, this was a time when women were starting to take roles on the stage because you go back to Shakespeare in this period between 1800 and the uh, 16th century. And in that period of time, there's some changes in English culture. In Shakespeare times, all the female roles were played by women. So I mean, played by men. All the female roles were played by men. So imagine uh, Rome, uh, Juliet in Romeo and Juliet or Desdemona or Desdemona, as I would say, in, uh, in Otella, um, where this romantic thing is actually two men. I guess you really have to suspend your, uh, your uh, disbelief if you're expecting uh, more like typecasting in that period of time. But Smithson was known because she could express emotion with her face and her arms. Because to be a stage actor, you have to kind of overact so the people up in the balcony can see what you're doing. Well, she came to Paris. That's where Berlioz saw her on the stage. That's where Berlioz uh, became uh, infatuated with her, obsessed with her. You ever thought about the word obsession? Obsession, according to the online dictionary, is the state of being obsessed with someone or something. Or it's an idea, a thought, a person that continually preoccupies or intrudes on a person's mind. Does that sound like obsession? Uh, possession, on the other hand, was when someone from outside of you takes possession of your will and overrides and dominates you. That's always associated with demonic action. So how do we know Berlioz became obsessed with Harriet Smithson? Because during the time that she was in Paris, uh, Berlioz rented an apartment across the street from Harriet. So although he could never approach her because he was not worthy, he could watch her leave in the morning and come home in the evening. And so she was getting to the end of her career because she was about 32 years old. And as you know, to, if you're a female there can, uh, on, on the stage, and they still complain about it in Hollywood, uh, there's, a, there's some really hard realities uh, that are human realities uh, that are imposed on women who are trying to be successful in the movies and in theater. Uh, Smithson returned to England. She opened up her own theater. Roles were drying up for her, but she thought if she started her own theater like her biological dad had done, she'd be in control. But she broke her leg. She was out of business for about a year, uh, facing financial failure. Then she saw Symphony Fantastique being performed. She read the program. She knew it was about her because she knew who Berlioz was. So they connected. They became lovers, and then they married. And so a little bit later, we'll return to that marriage at the end, uh, marriage that starts in that kind of obsession, because it's something about where obsession leads us. 
And it's something about uh, how Berlioz told that story where Symphony Fantastique ends with the Catholic hymn, or at least a riff on the Catholic hymn, the Day of Wrath, the Dies Irae, and the Witch's Sabbath. Because an obsession is like a rabbit hole. It goes to dark places. And so for now, we're going to turn to something that Catholics should understand well. It's the problem of demons and the diabolic. This is Oro Valley Catholic. And so the gospel today is very much about demonic activity in our life. The story of Jesus' second prediction of his passion, the disciples arguing about who is the greatest, and then Jesus talking about, if you want to follow me, you have to be like a little child. You have to be willing to be led and pay attention. This is the gospel today. But it's sandwiched between two stories of the demonic and Jesus' exorcism of a demon and then other people's exercising of demons. And so all three of these stories are about demonic activity. And so what did they think about demonic activity in the first century? Well, opinions vary. And so the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. But they also didn't believe in angels or demons. They thought pretty much this was it. There was a God. If you were one of his favored ones and you played by the rules, God would reward you. That's why the Sadducees are on top of the social pyramid in the ancient world. It's also why they don't exist anymore after the temple was destroyed. But the Pharisees, who are so often Jesus' opponents in the Gospels, Jesus and the Pharisees really agree on, a, on quite a lot. Angels, uh, demons, uh, the resurrection at the end of time. What the Pharisees don't believe is that the resurrection will happen after Jesus is is raised from the dead. But these stories of exorcism are also about the power of God over death and over the demonic. And so how do Catholics think about, um, about uh, the demonic? Because we don't spend a lot of time about it, though the church has been pretty clear on its teaching. And I'm relying on uh, uh, a document put out in the 70s by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on Christian life and demonology, that is the study of, uh, of these spirits. And so uh, this is uh, a shorthand version of, 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 a, of a much more complete understanding that comes from that document. So uh, Satan and sin. Um, sin is something that human beings do. Uh, Satan committed his sin at the moment of his creation. Well, because an angel, when they're created, they know everything they're ever going to know. So the decision gets made. And that's why, Revelation 12, this battle breaks out in heaven between My, uh, Michael and the good angels and, and the demons. And that the point is that the, the demons are cast out of, of, of God's creation uh, in that ch uh, chapter 12 battle. Um, Evil can devour us, but evil, Satan, is not really a separate reality. The way that we Catholics think about evil is as it's parasitic on the good. And this, St. Augustine is the, is the great um, theologian who discusses uh, the, the nature of evil and, and demons. God is good. Everything he created is good. How do we know it? Because in Genesis 1, when God creates everything, he says it's good, concluding at the end that it's very good. 
So God does not create evil. So for Augustine, what that means, and it's very logical, is that evil doesn't have a separate existence. How demonology has come up in Catholic arguments over the last 20 centuries is when the Catholic battle with Manichaeism, which has different iterations throughout history, the Cathars, the Waldenensians, but it really it's the same idea. There's a good God and a bad God. The Marcionists had this kind of idea. Um, and that explains why there's evil in the world. There's this battle between good and evil. There's like two armies battling, and sometimes like Ignatius of Loyola famously uses that metaphor. But Ignatius doesn't mean what the Cathars meant. And so for us, at our understanding, everything is good. Evil is a diminution on the good. It brings disorder in the world. It destroys good. The only reason that you can even see evil is because it exists within the goodness of God's creation. What I just told you about the nature of evil as a, something that in some really negative, dark way still participates in the goodness of God, this is the ontological approach to theology. And often when people think about demonology, they try to think about demons as kind of what they are. Ontos means being, trying to explain what Satan is. How can you explain something that doesn't really exist in the same sense that you and I exist? But it's also very powerful. You know, the Greeks, Plato in particular, talked about the spiritual world. And Plato had this demonstration where he says, I can think of an idea, and that idea doesn't have height or width or depth. Um, it doesn't have weight. It doesn't have anything we associate with materiality. But still, it actually exists in my human consciousness. That's why he says you could believe in God and believe in the spiritual world, because we do participate in, in this world of consciousness that, that Catholics live in. And that's why I want to turn to a second way of thinking about demons, which I think is much more profitable for us. And it's essentially a phenomenological perspective, um, studying evil not as the Satan or demons might be in themselves, but studying how it is that they affect human life, phenomena. And so, for instance, um, there's four ways that evil operates in our life. Um, the diabolic, because a, a, the diabolic is part of de, uh, uh, demonic activity. But demon basically means spirit. Um, diabolic is something that divides. And so fundamental to the reality of demons is uh, division. It breaks us up inside. You remember the demon where Jesus makes him tell his story? It's in the Gerasene demoniac, which is uh, also in, in chapter, uh, I mean, in, in Mark's gospel. Um, and the demon, Jesus says, tell me your name. And the demon says, I am legion, for we are many. Um, and so this idea of these demons devouring each other and devouring this poor man in this graveyard uh, in the Decapolis. So the action of demons cuts us up inside, conflicts us inside, but also divides us from others. The second way that demons operate phenomenologically is that demons deceive us into believing um, into evil. Uh, 
Satan's empty works, his empty promises. He produces illusions that seem like angels of light to us, but they're not. Uh, and in the end, when we buy into his deceptions, we're really buying into the darkness, thinking we're buying into the good. Um, the great cure to that, I always say, is, is the magisterial teaching of the church. Listen to the popes and the bishops because it's a trustworthy voice outside your head. But when you decide you're not listening to them, you are fair game for the demonic. And then another way that the demonic operates, it diverts us. Um, the most important question in life is what does it mean to be born, to live, and to die? Uh, what's the meaning of human life? And when we fill up our life with diversions, um, getting ahead in our career, building our bank account, thinking about all the obsessions we have in romance or drugs or whatever it is, these diversions separate and undermine our happiness because they keep us from pursuing our final end, what we're made for, which is union with God. And then ultimately, the result of being divided, of being lied to, deceived by evil, um, filling up our life with meaningful things is uh, we're discouraged. Boy, look out into the world, in America especially, and think about this way of understanding demonic activity as it divides one for another, sets us against each other, deceives us into believing lies. We have alternate views of the facts of reality in America. We can't seem to agree on basic things. Um, we're diverted into the new tech thing or Facebook or whatever. And ultimately, it's a country that um, young people don't marry in, young people don't have children in. And boy, you want a sign of discourage, discouragement and hopelessness. Um, I was born into a much hope, more hopeful time into what America could be. Wow, things have changed. And I think that the roles of demons cannot be undermined in, uh, in a religious life, in our secular life, especially in America. So thinking about this, how does that look in uh, this Sunday's gospel? Let's turn now and look at the gospel. And so here's how I'd like to talk about the gospel today. I want to talk about the exorcism story immediately preceding the gospel pericope for today and the exorcism story that immediately follows. Maybe pull some insights out of that and apply them to what's happening amongst the disciples. So exorcism number one. And exorcism number one is found at starting at uh, chapter 9, verse 18. The man, um, a dad comes to uh, Jesus and he says, about this demon that has taken over his son. And he says, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they were unable to do so. And Jesus said to him in reply, Oh, faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I endure you? Bring him to me. And so dad brings his son to him. And then Jesus questions dad. How long has this been happening to him? He replied, since childhood. It's often thrown him into the fire and into water to kill him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible to one who has faith. And the boy's father cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Uh, because this is about this story of being cured of blindness in stages, which goes back to that story of curing the first blind man. 
of the very beginning of chapters 8, 9, and 10. So then Jesus walks to the boy, and Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, and he stood up. Now the word raised him up, if you go to the Greek, and I checked it myself, anastasi. Anastasis means resurrection. It's the same word the gospel will use when Jesus is raised from the dead. And so this sign of raising this uh, child up is about the power of God over evil uh, and over death, which is the fundamental disorder associated with evil because it breaks down the goodness of God's world. So when he entered the house, the disciples said to him, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind can only come out through prayer. So the disciples aren't apparently praying like they do. We'll turn to James at the end who talks about that. The second story is the story where the disciples complained to Jesus. And John, this is the beloved disciple, said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow us. Jesus replied, Do not prevent him. There is no one who performs a mighty deed in my name who can at the same time speak ill of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Anyone who gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to the Christ, amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. So in terms of what the disciples are struggling with, what they're doing, what do you pull out of that? First thing is, they're not praying. Not praying rightly, at least, as St. James says. And the second thing is, they're riven by envy, and they do not seem to be listening to Jesus' words. And so, let's turn to the Gospels. So, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, if you remember from last week, uh, the pattern of Jesus talking about his passion, death, and resurrection is met by, dis by rejection by the disciples, and then Jesus dealing with that reception by teaching. Um, last week, Jesus says, Unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Well, this week what happens is Jesus talks about his passion. The disciples don't say anything. Like the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, which Jesus warns against, they don't say anything. Then Jesus, they get to where they're going, and Jesus knows what's going on. He says, what were you guys arguing about the way? And he knew what they were arguing about on the way. They were arguing about who is the greatest. And so this is how the gospel says it. They came to Capernaum, and once inside the house, he began to ask them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent. They'd been discussing among themselves on the way who was the greatest. Then he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone wishes to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. Taking a child, he placed it in their midst, and putting his arms around it, said to them, Whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. So what's your diagnosis? They're envious of each other. They're all very proud. They're fighting with each other. Nobody's listening to Jesus. Nobody's talking to Jesus, which is what prayer is, the opportunity for prayer is that they have on, on the way. And so when Jesus teaches them about a child, he's saying, you know, children, uh, they should be attentive to their parents. Maybe they have a short attention span, but at least they're attentive to and trust their parent. You should think about discipleship like that. What do you trust? Your own interior voice or trust the, uh, trust the voice of Christ in the church? And so 
think about all of this as you look at the four ways of the demonic uh, acts, the phenomenological approach to the demonic. Are they divided? Yeah, they're arguing with each other. They're dominated by their own envy and pride. Are they deceived? They are not listening to Jesus about what the kingdom is, which involves suffering, death, and resurrection. They think they're going to get to Jerusalem, and they're all going to be taken over the country. Um, they're just believing what they want to believe. It's the temptation in the desert that, uh, that Jesus passes, where Satan offered to give control of all these nations. This is the lie the disciples are buying into, and yes, they're deceived. Are they diverted? Well, they're not paying attention to what Jesus is, is uh, trying to say is important. They're much more concerned about scoring debating points and who does Jesus like more. And boy, does that sound like modern Catholic conversations. And then discouraged, well, we know that Judas betrays him. Everybody, when push comes to shove, runs away. Discouraged, abandoning Jesus, yeah. This is all about demonic activity amongst the disciples. They see Jesus cast out demons, but they see it as something separate from them, something that they're not obsessed by, something which isn't threatening them with possession. And how do you really know that they're still clueless? Because the very next story is about John complaining enviously that somebody else is doing good stuff, freeing people from evil. And uh, we tried to stop him, but he wouldn't back off. He was going to go do evil, uh, good in Jesus' name, even though we told him, this is our job. You go find another one. Poor Jesus. How long must he endure these people? So do you remember what Jesus says to Simon Peter um, at the Last Supper in the Gospel of Luke? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan is demanded to sift all of you like wheat but I have prayed that your own faith may not fail. And once you've turned back, you must strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I'm prepared to go to prison and to die with you. But he replied, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows this day, you'll deny three times that you know me. How often does Jesus tell them what they really need to know? How often do they not listen? How often are they so sure that they have the power to see all of this through? Let's all pull this together and talk about the letter of James, because this problem doesn't end uh, with the resurrection and ascension of Christ. The early church struggled with it, just like we struggle with it now. The problem of the demonic, division, deception, discouragement, and diversion. So let's pull Harriet and Hector's story to a close. So, Symphony Fantastique premiered in 1832. Harriet knew it was about her. Hector called her, said, hey, I'm just across the street. Why don't we meet? Uh, they soon became lovers. By 1833, they were married. Pretty quick uh, courtship. Uh, but things quickly turned sour. Although they had a child in 1834, uh, Harriet's career just tanked, and she was very envious that Hector's was was taking off. And so seven years after their marriage in 1840, uh, Berlioz left the marriage and didn't divorce her, I guess, but moved in with a singer named Marie Recieux. He supported Harriet until her death in 1854. Then after that, he immediately married the singer 
who died a few years later in 1862. Berlioz followed his two wives in 1869. After Marie's death, Hector um, continued to support her mom. And so in his life, there's these weird obsessions. They kind of, he's the victim of them as well as others. Um, but there's also some goodness in there. And it's this understanding of evil as being parasitic uh, in the good. And so in Hector's story, just like in the story of the disciples, there's obsession. He gets obsessed with these two, these uh, various women he falls in love with. The disciples are obsessed with what they believe following Jesus will do for them, what's in it for them. They're envious of each other. Uh, clearly, they suffer from pride. And in James's letter, chapter 3, he says, Why do you people fight all the time? Why is there war among you? Um, it's because you don't rely on the great virtues of peace uh, and gentleness, which, which come from God. Instead, um, you just fight and battle with each other. You pray, but you don't get what you pray for because you don't ask rightly. Um, you have to learn how to pray rightly. And so what do you pray for? Well, you pray to follow Christ more clearly, to love him more dearly, um, to always keep your eyes focused on Jesus at the storms at sea or walking on the road to Calvary. That would actually make a nice poem. But we can all get so hyper-focused on what our concerns are. An obsession is something that takes over our mind and it preoccupies us. It can be out of envy, pride, or the desire to dominate the world around us. Here's something that I recommend about prayer. It's not the only way to pray, but it's certainly clearly a wonderful uh, a gift that the church gives us. When you find yourself bothered by dark thoughts of whatever nature that are constantly nagging at you, hitting at your weak spot, um, well, go to confession. That's, that's the key. So it can't be a secret. You have to tell someone, the priest, about it. But also, every time you're tempted, pray to St. Michael the Archangel and always pray to your guardian angel. Why? Because we're struggling with principalities and dominions. This is not all about us. There is this world out there that wants to devour you from the inside out. The good news is, is you follow Christ, you stay close to the sacraments, you go to Mass. This is what deliverance ministry is. This is how you conquer evil in your life through the power of Christ. It's not you doing it. It's that you focus on Christ. And so, Oro Valley Catholic, uh, another edition if you like it, repost it, uh, give, me a, give me some love, uh, encourage your friends to watch it. It, it seems to be growing um, in amazing ways. And so God bless you, and until next time we see each other, say your prayers, especially remember St. Michael and your guardian angel, and peace be with you.